Okay, welcome to um, this BTOG podcast. Uh, my name is Stephen Harrow. I'm a consultant clinical oncologist at Edinburgh Cancer Centre and also a member of the BTOG Steering Committee. This is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where we have informal chats with experts in their fields and tackle the most important questions we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. It's important to say that sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning content or delivery of anything discussed. So today's podcast is called BTOG Does Oligomets and it's a pleasure for me to introduce Dr or Professor David Palma. Um, so David and I worked together um, in Vancouver uh, back in the early noughties um, and we've kept in touch over the years. Um, David is well known to um, clinical oncologists involved in the management of lung cancer but he's also very involved in oligomets. So there has been the chief investigator on the um, seminal um, Sabre Comet study. Um, He's also chief investigator on Comet 10 and is integral in the development and running of Comet 3. He's currently working in London, Ontario. Um, So it's a great pleasure and privilege for me to to have this discussion with David today. So it's two o'clock my side, but I think it's still early morning your side, is that right? Yeah, that's right, Stephen. Good morning and thanks for having me. Pleasure. So we have um, 20 minutes to discuss Oligomex and Sabre. So um, I'm just going to start off with probably a hard question. So can you tell me what do you mean by Oligomex? Can you describe that to me? And also, um, can you convince me that this is a real clinical scenario? Yeah, that's a great way to start. Oligomex to me just means a few metastases. And I think we have the best evidence that it means one, two, or three metastases. People talk a lot about, is it one to three? Is it one to five? Is it one to 10? I don't think that really matters. I think the question is actually different. It's, are we benefiting patients? Do we benefit patients with three mets? Do we benefit patients with 12 mets if we treat them all with radiation? But narrowing down to what we would traditionally call oligomets, let's say one to three or one to five, I think the best convincing evidence comes from phylogenetic trees where they take patients who've unfortunately passed away from cancer, they sequence all their, their, the tumor and their metastases, and they develop an evolutionary timeline of when these metastases developed. And these phylogenetic trees quite compellingly show that there are a number of patients who have a period of time with only one, two, or three metastases. And then of course we have the randomized data and, and we all in our practices do have patients who have lived a long time with um, after treatment for oligometastases. And the best example that I can think of is the first patient on the Saber Comet trial who is next month coming up to 10 years post stereo for one metastasis. So some people are cured. It's a small minority. And I think that is pretty compelling, but we're waiting for the phase three data. Okay. So, so yeah, so we're, we're going to spend the next 20 mo- minutes kind of convincing the naysayers that, that, that this is real. Yeah. Because yeah, well, like- Naysaying is good. We need naysaying, um, but we also need to be able to move off of our positions if, if new data comes along. Okay, so so you obviously started off with the, the Sabre Comet study. So tell me, how did that all start and how did you get that up and running? Can you talk me through that? Yeah, so I had completed my fellowship at the VU University in Amsterdam. And I would put in a plug for any trainees. If you have the ability to go somewhere else, train somewhere else, it really opens up your horizons. And most of the research I've done is a direct line from my work there with Ben Slotman and Suresh Sennett. And the oligomets debate was going on. Everybody was talking about, should we treat, should we not? And I remember the idea for the trial came about one day. I was actually on vacation with my family at the beach. My mind was wandering and I was 
thinking that we needed to do a trial. And I thought, you know, I really, really need to do this. And, and one thing that I've thought a lot more about in the past few years is for young researchers who might be listening to this, having time for your mind to wander is very important. And I think that um, if we are too distracted by the electronic devices in our life, you don't have that time. There's a great book called Deep Work uh, by Cal Newport that talks about if you're in an industry like ours where you need to be creative, you need to have time for your mind to wander. So we decided to do a phase two trial. We decided to do that using all histologies. And we decided that we probably could accrue about 100 patients. So we came up with the best question we could with about 100 patients, and that became the Saber Common Trial. So you started off thinking you would probably just get 100 patients in, and so how good can you make the study? Is that how you, you started, or did you, you think of the idea and then work out the calculations after it? How did you go about it? Yeah, and this is another thing I always talk about when people are designing studies. If you ask a statistician how to design a study, they'll say, come up with a question, I'll give you a sample size. But the problem is that sample size is always 300 and you might not be able to do that. So I, my approach is different. It's a bit of heresy. I say, think about how many patients you can get and then ask the very best question you can, because so many trials fail due to poor accrual and there are ways to be creative. So when we did orator for head and neck, orator and orator two, we thought we could get about 60 to hundred patients. We came up with a quality of life question for missile, which was a stereo then resection trial. We thought we could get about 40 patients. We came up with a question for that. So it's a bit of a different approach and it helps to have a statistician who can really iterate with you quickly about a sample size and a question, or even for some of the rat who have stats training, you can do some of it yourself. Yeah, so so you, you started this and, and you got it started, what, open 2012? Was that when we 2012, started? Yeah. Okay, so, so t- run that through with me then. How, how was it going? How did it go? How did you find it getting set up? Was it a nightmare? Was it okay? It, it was okay. But the first three months we had no accrual and I thought, oh God, this is yet another, yet another failed study. And then along came this first patient in February, 2012, who had an adrenal metastasis. I had not treated one. And I reached out to a colleague of mine, George Rodriguez. And he said, you know, you've got to put someone on the trial. If they meet the inclusion criteria, put them on, I'll help you with the plan. And someone took a photo of us at the treatment unit that first day. And I looked totally stressed. I looked a lot younger. I didn't have any wrinkles. <laughs> must have been the filters or something. But, uh, but I'm sure we were it back a long time ago now, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. And accrual was slow for the first year or so. And then as more centers came on, it really picked up. And then, you know, when you opened it, uh, when you were in, uh, in Glasgow, then the accrual went through the roof. And then accrual was going so fast, we thought, should we expand? But we thought it would be better to get good phase two data. So we closed as planned. And then we went from there. Okay, so I know the data, but can you, you summarize to me then what, what, what you found? Sure. So we enrolled nine and nine patients. And the uh, histologies mainly were uh, breast, lung, prostate, colon. We'll talk about the prostate slight imbalance uh, in a second. And uh, what we found in the original analysis that we had a 13-month improvement in median survival. We met the primary endpoint, which was a phase two screening design, which is meant to just get an initial look at the data to inform the design of a phase three. As we followed longer and longer, we've just updated the results, which we'll be, we'll be uh, presenting at ESTRO in Copenhagen in May. Yep. With follow-up now that where all patients have passed five years of follow-up. Um, and what we found, not to give away too much, not to, no spoiler alert here, but the longer the follow-up, the more the benefit, it seems, at least that it's quite durable. And so we look forward to um, even one final analysis. We did extend the trial to 10 years of follow-up from the original five because we had so many patients coming to five years. So this is really nice long-term data. It has 
some caveats to it. It's a phase two screening study. It's not definitive, but it really does give some support to the concept of oligomancy. Okay, so, you know, the first paper obviously published in The Lancet, what, 2019 showed really quite a marked difference in overall survival between Sabre and the control group. And what about side effects and toxicity? Because there, there was a bit, and I don't suppose we should should ignore that. No, 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 we shouldn't ignore that. I think I have the dubious distinction of having the trial with the highest toxicity rate. So oh, at least really? the highest, <laughs> highest fatality rates. I'm hoping Sabre comment 10 will redeem us. Yeah, we the... might just cut that bit out. <laughs> I'm only joking. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Um, So in terms of toxicity rates, we had about 30% of people who had a grade two or higher toxicity, which isn't too bad, to be honest. I mean, 70% did not. So when I consent patients, I say that many patients have either no side effects or just fatigue. And then I tell them there's about a one in three chance of something bothersome. And then I go through the descriptions. We didn't have these three treatment-related fatalities. And I think they're fairly scored as treatment-related fatalities. Sometimes there are several intervening steps between the saver and the the fatality that could have gone a different way. And Mm -hmm. so I think our data is an outlier in terms of the the fatality rate. When you look at, there was a nice meta-analysis in uh, JAMA Oncology recently of saver trials showing the rate of grade three to five toxicity to be very low, around 1% acute, 1% late. So I think we have to be careful. I think we have to be safe. We, I tell people when in doubt, use a lower dose, when in doubt, compromise the PTV. Okay, I'm gonna to come to that. That's uh, something I want to discuss with you um, is about PTV coverage. So, you know, it, what the really nice thing, I think also with, with the um, saver comment study was that you got quality of life data. Um, you know, I remember the forms all getting filled out. And so, do you, to, do you want to just tell me roughly just what your quality of life data was and, and yeah. how that supports this? Yeah, I think it's important first to think, remember the principle that you can't make an asymptomatic patient feel better. And these mm-hmm. patients are asymptomatic. So we're not looking for an improvement in quality of life compared to the baseline. What we found over time is that both arms, the saver arm and the standard arm, had very slow but steady declines in quality of life year over year, as you might expect. I think that might unfortunately happen to all of us as yeah. the but people do progress, of course. Um, but there was no difference between the arms in terms of quality of life. So Saber wasn't preserving quality of life, but actually wasn't impacting quality of life negatively, which is a really important consideration because one of the oligomets trials, the EORTC4004 trial, which was RFA for liver mets, they had a 27-point hit in quality of life associated with the with RFA. So it's not that all ablated modalities are free of a quality of life impact, but it looks like Saber is probably pretty good in that regard. Yeah, and I think we see that quite a lot. I think with just saber for lung meds, don't we? You know, in our in our in our thoracic practice, don't we? we you know, quality of life is often preserved, and when we saber these people, mm. and so um, I remember, um, you know, COVID hit twenty twenty. We had some discussions, and and quite keen to get the data out because we felt, well, you know, saber for oligomets is probably going to be something that we we can expand in the the COVID area. For patients you know surgery had shut down so so we, we got the the updated data out um in 2020 and yeah it was pretty impressive do you want to just tell us about that so what we found with the updated data is that the as follow-up continued the difference became larger and the p-value for the overall survival difference went from 0.09 to 0.006 something very close to that and that makes sense because you're, for oligometastatic patients, you're not probably going to see a difference in survival in the first year because even untreated, the cancer should not be a cause of death within the first year. So with more time, the curves diverge more and more. And we'll see with this update at ESTRO, 
how that mm-hmm. goes and, and with the final update once everyone gets to 10 years. But I think it's important also for trials coming through. We have BR002 is on hold for the interim analysis. LU002 is on hold for the interim analysis. It does take time for these curves to diverge and hopefully there'll be enough follow-up time to see a signal to then proceed to phase three. So I was going to talk to you about the, the longer term follow-up because obviously I've seen the abstract going to, to estro, but I think we don't want to see too much about that, but it's, it's looking good, yeah? Yeah, I think it's looking favorable. You know, nothing nothing adverse was found and it continues a pattern that we saw before, but come to Copenhagen and we can chat about it then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I might do that. Um, so, um, so since you've, you've published Saber Comet and you know, obviously, you know, done lots of these talks and gone around the country, what's the international feeling like? I mean, is that something that you feel that all countries are now on board or do you think, you know, most countries are still skeptical or is the UK more skeptical than most? What's, what's your impression? There's definitely a change in the view of Sabre over the past five or 10 years. And I think it's because of the increasing number of randomized trials in support of it. And I think people themselves become more comfortable with it. They also, you know, we're human, we're anecdote driven. They also see their own patients who are surviving. I think the UK, I know I have obviously lots of friends in the UK. Sometimes there's some consternation that you feel that you might not be the fastest to start up with new technologies. But at the same time, I think there is a strong balance in the UK that is extremely important and that's needed to generate evidence because there have been too many wrong paths in medicine where we go down the wrong way everybody gets enthusiastic and once you've adopted something you can't go back once you buy a proton machine for your center it's very hard to then start randomizing people to to have protons or not which we need to do there's no question that is should not be touched by an RCT if you can do it ethically and so I think yeah people are coming around we have numerous randomized trials um you know, in Long, we have we have Gomez and Iyengar. We have now the Sindus trial, which has some difficulties with it, but still some evidence. We have yeah. Stomp and Oriole for prostate. We have that RFA trial I mentioned. We have Sabre Comet. So there are uh, quite a few. And there are a lot of things we do in medicine that don't have as much evidence that we do on a regular basis. So I'm not saying we have enough where treatment should be considered standard of care, but my own personal view as a practicing physician, if I don't have a trial to put somebody on, which we often do, and that's the way to go. But if I don't have a trial, I think you need to give serious consideration to giving SABRE to a patient who has a small number of metastases. So something that you know that came up this week in practice, and I'd just be interested to see how you, how you manage this. So you know, um, we've been talking to teams in our centre about you know the, the studies that are coming through, which we can have a talk about in a, in a minute. But in you know these studies are are still recruiting and and. Um, you know, at the moment, if you had somebody who had colorectal cancer and then they popped up two lung mets, where would you feel that they should be directed? Because I think there's still a feeling that, you know, although there's no data to support surgical resection, that that's what they do. That's the historical way that these patients have been treated. And, and do you think that's still the case? And would you, is that what you would suggest? Or do you think that, you know, we need to kind of sharpen our elbows and muscle in a bit more? Well, there are pros and cons, and I'll tell you where I land on this. The, the advantage of, of surgical resection is always the histology, that we can't get histology unless you're biopsying every lesion. But if you have three lung meds, I don't think, at least in Canada, we're not sticking a needle into each of those three. Maybe people are more comprehensive with their biopsies in other countries. The advantage of Sabre, of course, is that the toxicity is probably less. Perhaps the local control with Sabre is a bit less, especially for colorectal than with surgery. The other layer on top of this is, are you at a high volume surgical center? Are you at a high volume radiation center? If you are not at a high volume surgical center, I think that's a that's end of story. There's US data showing that the mortality from a metastectomy is double 
in low volume centers. And, and I think with Sabre, we don't have that data yet, but I wouldn't be surprised because Sabre can be tricky. There are a lot of little paths you can go down not knowing about the brachial plexus, how to contour that, not being aware of central altocentral tumors, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, portahepatitis lesions near there can cause problems. Overall, though, I don't think it's fair to say that the, the outcomes with Sabre will be the same as surgery because the toxicity profiles are different. And the preponderance of evidence, you know, we look at these randomized trials that I've listed, most of them were either Sabre mm. or Sabre slash RT or surgery. And even in those two trials that were Sabre slash RT or surgery, 75% had Sabre. So most people are getting radiation. That's where the evidence is. So I think it's a nuanced discussion with your multidisciplinary team. My general approach is to discuss all of these with our surgeons and make a decision together. They will, they will um, decide about the risk. We'll look at the need for, for more histology and then we'll make a decision together. And I think that's the best way to go. We're lucky in Canada some ways because I think the conflict between specialties is probably less than in other centers or at least in other countries that we hear about through other means like social media. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it will not go down. That's another podcast uh, on its own. Um, so, moving on then to the the current crop of trials that that you're involved with, you know, Comet Three, Comet Ten, and and we're really lucky in Scotland to be able to open these. So, um, do, do you want to talk about Comet Three first of all? I know that this is Rob Olson's um, leading on this study, but I know that you're intimately involved in it. Yeah, so COMET-3 is for people with one to three metastatic lesions in a controlled primary, tu primary tumor. We split at one to three versus four to 10 because of the fact that Sabre COMET had almost everybody with one to three. We didn't think we had any data for four to 10. So we thought, let's just do one to three and go from there. Uh, Rob Olson, for the listeners, worked with Stephen and me back in Vancouver. We were all co-trainees together. And it can show how some of these things do develop over time into long-term friendships and long-term collaborations. Hmm. Sabre Comet 3 is accruing extremely well. It was a bit slow at first to get things going. It's opened after Comet 10. They're at about a quarter accrued right now, but the pace has, is really quite fast. They are accruing at centers where Sabre is only given on trial. And it's very, very reasonable. People ask, but is there still equipoise about Sabre? Well, there's no way to measure everybody's opinion on something and everything's going to diverge, you know, just, just making the point that people have their own opinion. Someone could say I'm vehemently anti-oligomous treatment and someone could say I'm radically in favor of it and you're never going to reconcile that. But is there, is it reasonable to have equipoise, I think is the question. And of course, yes, it is. So Sabre Comet 3 is accruing very, very well. The sample size will be 300. And it'll probably take about two more years to finish that. And as I mentioned, Rob Olson is leading that. He's in, in uh, the West Coast of Canada. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's I mean, we, we're taking part, obviously, and I think it's really good to be part of it. And I think it, it drives up development within a centre, and we've certainly found that, you know, we're not that experienced in liver and adrenal, and I think it gives our physics teams, you know, good support um, when, if you're involved in a clinical trial to make these developments. But also I think that, it'll be really nice to get some good quality overall survival data. And I'm quite proud that we're, we're getting involved in this study. Exactly. And it will put the question, this question to rest, but then there will be more questions, of course, but it will put this one to rest. So, and, and, and that's quite, you know, comment three is quite simple for people to get their headlines. And certainly when we've been presenting it in our department to different, you know, tumor groups, comment 10, that's a little bit um, more, off the wall thinking you must have been having some more beach time I think when you were <laughs> looking this up 
the idea with Comet 10 is that if the lesions are small, we can treat lots of them, first of all, at least within dose constraints. But the other, it's a bit of a departure from the oligometastatic state. And this is why I don't think we'll ever have a number, one to three, one to five. People have thought about oligometastases, meaning you have a few metastases, maybe we can cure you which is kind of the radonc paradigm. The medical oncology paradigm is not that at all. The medical oncology paradigm is we're going to give you a treatment that we know is eventually going to fail and you're going to progress. And it has a moderate amount of toxicity. Then we'll go on to the next treatment. So let's say we have somebody with six metastases. We're going to ablate them all. We might on this trial. We, I, I don't think we're going to cure them. Maybe there'll be a small percentage of you, but the majority are going to develop new metastases. But can we extend their survival because we have done that? That's certainly a fair hypothesis. It's more than it's more the medonc approach. We are going to give you something that's going to work for a bit of time, and then we don't expect it to work forever. At some point, something else is going to come up, and then you'll go on to your next line of systemic therapy. And so, Saber Comet Ten has accrued about one hundred and nine out of the final sample size of two hundred and four. We just that was just increased based on an interim analysis, and the accrual is also going very very well, faster than expected. We were thinking to be done in five years; will be done in about four and a half, even with the higher sample size, and that will finish in 2023 well, that's fantastic isn't it that's so exciting um when you when you, you know, obviously you're you're if, you know if we are doing more lesions and lesions are going to be in more complicated places aren't they and and we're going to be finding that they're up against the heart or trachea with nodes and you know obviously we, one of the papers that was published in the uh, was it the red journal looking at you know the, the dose distribution across the ptv mm -hmm. as being an issue and that is something that that, that does come up in our in our, our planning meetings you know do we do we drop the dose and cover the whole ptv uh, homogeneous dose or do we have a, a differential across the ptv treating part of it to high dose and part of it to very low so what, what, how, how do you manage these? You know, what, what's your thinking? How do you discuss that with your physics team and your, your colleagues? Yeah. When, when we started Sabre Comet back in 2012, the idea of not treating a PTV homogeneously was insane. Maybe not insane, but it was very different thinking for a lot of people and people were comfortable with that um, at first. Our general approach is to err on the side of caution because mm -hmm. Generally, we think that, you know, the lesion in question is not the lesion that's going to impact overall survival. Probably that one lesion, you know, if it's in a really critical area, then maybe, but a peripheral lung med is, that's two centimeters is not likely to end someone's life anytime soon. So if you have to drop the dose a bit to a metastasis, it's probably not a big deal. A few little interesting thoughts about this. One is that with the Saber Comet 10 doses, it's actually planning is much easier because the most common dose being used is 35 gray and five fractions. Um, also maybe 20 gray and one fraction. Those you can deliver almost anywhere without too much worry about toxicity. The other thing I think we need to realize is that these dose constraints are educated guesses. And there's a great editorial by Dr. Timmerman in the Red Journal a couple of issues ago talking about how he came up with these. Yeah. And it's really, it's really instructive. And, and I, I tell people- Just become writing, fact, don't they? These kind of absolutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell people when, they, when you're writing a trial, there are a lot of uncertainties about writing a trial and what should you do. And there's not a lot of evidence to make those decisions upon. And so sometimes you just make a decision as an investigator, design your trial and, and go with it. Because you could spend years quibbling about these different things. So that's what Terminum did. He came up with some educated dose constraints. But whether the duodenum can take a point dose of 32 and five fractions or 30 or 26 or 40, 40 is a bit high, but we don't have great data to guide us on that. And so these are a bit of an informed guess. But our overall approach is to err on the side of caution, compromise the PTV, and keep the OIR within tolerance. The other factor that's 
at play here is as our targeting gets better, many centers have now MR-guided delivery with real-time adaptive treatment, for example, then, then it's not quite, those constraints don't quite mean the same thing. Because before we were probably less sure about what something was getting. And just as a quick digression, you know, with the HILIS trial, which was lung, but mm -hmm. it was ultra central. There were a lot of hot spots that were within the GTV, yeah. but there is a lot of movement of bronchi and, and the, mm -hmm. the 40 CT is only one breathing cycle. So is that hot spot ending up in the, in the, sure. in the uh, proximal bronchial tree? We don't know. So I think as targeting gets better, then maybe our dose constraints will be even more permissive. Okay. So we should be looking out for Comet 20. Well, we do. We are running a rest. You know, there used to be a joke at, <laughs> uh, in our peer review rounds, we call them QA rounds, but it's like chart rounds where a patient with multiple Mets would be presented and they would ask, you know, Dave, is Comet 50 open yet? So we do have the arrest trial, which is for more than 10 metastases. It's a, it's a phase one trial. It's almost done. We're getting close to the last cohort. And then we have ready to go a, a phase two, three randomized where people with more than 10 meds are going to be treated, these doses will be even lower. And the idea is just to pause, just to pause the, the disease when you have mm. perhaps no other systemic options. The difficulty is that it takes a long time to contour 15 lesions, and we will need some ways to do that more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, we might not open that one. We'll just have to see. <laughs> David, listen, that's us at 20. Well, we're over 20 minutes. I can't believe that that's, that's gone so fast. So I really just want to say thanks so much for taking the time out um, to, to do this podcast. And, and hopefully people will find it really interesting. And I want to iterate also about how important it is to go into a fellowship and, and build up relationships internationally with, with people and, and, and get involved in trial work if you, if you can. I think it was, just, it was good for me. It's been good for you. And um, yeah. I agree. Thanks, Thanks Stephen. I hope to see everybody in person at a VTOG coming soon. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely have to have you over. Cheers, David. Thanks, Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. For more information on BTOG, including more educational events, uh, podcasts, and how to become a member, uh, please visit the website at www.btog.org. Uh, thank you for your attention, and we'll be bringing more uh, podcasts to, to you soon. Goodbye.